Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to the book of James. Uh, That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, as we come to the Word, uh, let me pray for us just once more. Our great God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this church. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come, to worship you, to hear your word. Lord, we thank you for Thanksgiving this week. We thank you for Christmas coming up and just the holiday season that we get to be in right now. And Lord, in the midst of that hustle and bustle of this time, Lord, I pray um, that we would pause and that we would hear from you. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to Um, figure things out on our own or to fumble around in the dark, but Lord, that you have clearly spoken to us in this word. And so God, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would build us up, that you'd help us to endure in the Christian life um, even more today because of this word. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard of the magician Oz Perlman before. I hadn't heard of him uh, a while ago, so maybe you haven't. But this man, Mr. Perlman, has appeared on many famous venues practicing his magic tricks of mind reading before. Just the other day, he performed some magic tricks for the Seattle Seahawks football team. And there's a video on YouTube you can watch of him doing this, but with one player, he was able to go up to him and guess this guy's phone passcode just out of the blue. With someone else he was able to guess the exact person that that guy was thinking of. And and with another guy, to take it up a notch, he had this guy think of a person in his mind, and then this person's name was magically written on his hand. But like with any magic show, we know that there must be something else going on, right? Either this guy is completely lying, it's all a hoax, and he's simply planting people in the audience, or he is just really, really skilled at what he does. Assuming that he's not lying, in order to be really skilled at magic tricks like these, what do you have to do? Well, the magician needs to learn how to intentionally deceive and mislead his audience. He needs to get your mind going one way and thinking one thing, and then the art of misdirection is able to come in and deceive you. Or they need to be really intentional and skillful about planting particular things in your mind so as to make you think that you are picking that person when in actuality they were deceptively leading you there all along. So today in our biblical passage, the author James does not want his people to be deceived. He does not want them to be misled by the art of misdirection or have false things placed in their mind. But in order to not be deceived, they can't just simply show up to the magic show and sit back and enjoy themselves. They actually have to know how to combat against spiritual deception. So today we're sort of parachuting into the letter of James. But James, if you don't know, he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, as he tells us in chapter 1. Verse 1. These are Christians who had fled Jerusalem due to persecution, and now they're spread out all across the Mediterranean world. And all throughout the letter of James, James is having to undo all sorts of deception that these people are facing. You see, these Christians are going through a tremendous amount of trials in their persecutions, 
and James is a wise pastor. James knows that when we as Christians go through hard things, we are all prone towards being deceived. And James is concerned for these Christians' souls. He's concerned for not only their individual souls, but for their spiritual livelihood as churches. James knows that if these Christians are deceived in the midst of their trials, it's eventually going to lead to their sinful disobedience. And sadly, as as we've probably all seen before, one little thing leads to another. A little sinful disobedience can lead to a lot of sinful disobedience. And a lot of sinful disobedience without repentance can actually sadly lead to abandoning God and abandoning the gospel message altogether. The snowball can start going down the hill, as it were, and lead to an avalanche of sin and unrepentance if, if divine grace doesn't stop us and lead us to godly and sincere repentance. So for these believers here that James is writing to, James wants to clear the fog, so to speak. James wants to help these Christians think rightly and see clearly about God in themselves in the midst of their trials. And ultimately, this is because James wants these Christians to persevere. He wants them to respond to their trials with godly obedience, and he does not want them to be deceived. So let's read this text together. If you're already there, in James chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 27. James chapter 1. I'll be starting in verse 13. This is God's word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I'm calling this sermon, How to Not Be Deceived in Our Trials. How to Not Be Deceived in Our Trials. And James is going to break it down for us in three main parts, as we'll see 
as we go along. The first section there is verses 13 through 16, where James encourages us that the first way to not be deceived in our trials is this. Don't blame God for temptations. So inherent in this section is the idea that these Christians are being tempted to sin in their dispersion. How are they being tempted, you may ask? Well, earlier up in chapter 1 gives us some hints. Probably these Christians are being tempted to grumble in the midst of their trials and not actually count them as joy as we saw in verses 2 through 4. They're also being tempted to not look to God for wisdom in the midst of their trials, but simply trying to figure it all out on their own. Furthermore, it's likely that these Christians are being tempted to cozy up next to their wealth and show partiality towards the poorer members in their churches. And these Christians are presumably looking for a way to get off the hook by blaming all of these temptations on God. They might be saying things in a sort of whining tone like, well, I didn't choose to be dispersed. I didn't sign up for being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Well, I didn't choose to have a heated conflict with a fellow member of my church over socioeconomic status. I didn't choose to be going through these hard times that just make me want to grumble. Or maybe, maybe they're a little more sophisticated than that. Maybe they're even using good theology in a wrong-hearted way and saying things like, well, if God is sovereign over everything, he's the one who put us into these situations, so technically, therefore, he must be the one who is tempting us to sin. And James comes along in these verses and says, hold on, hold on, hold on, look. When you are facing these temptations, do not blame it on God. Yes, you are going through hard times. And yes, God is sovereign over everything. But God is not tempting you to evil. God is not tempting you to sin as he himself tempts no one. But rather, when you are being tempted, actually it's the complete opposite. It's not God's fault, but ours is what James says. So the reason you are being tempted is because you have sinful desires that lure and entice you, is what James says there. In other words, we're like little fish swimming around, and we see some nice, juicy bait just hanging out on the fishing line, and it looks pretty good, and we're pretty hungry, and maybe we've even been able to outsmart the fishermen before, but as Thomas Watson says, sin always promises the bait but hides the hook. And James would agree. He says here in verse 15 that if you take these sinful desires to their logical end, a conception takes place. And it doesn't take nine months with a gender reveal party or anything like that. But immediately after this conception, a birth takes place and out pops baby sin, is what James says. And James tells us that unlike our human babies, baby sin is not a cute, cuddly little infant. If you let baby sin feed, if you let it grow, if you let baby sin get some walking around legs, it's going to take control of your life. And before you know it, it's going to grow right up into death. And so instead of affirming them in their wrong use of good theology or simply in doubting God's character altogether, James is turning it on them, flipping the script, and he's saying, look where your sin would lead you. You might think that these temptations and that giving in to them would bring you some sort of temporary happiness or relief, but in actuality, it is going to lead you to your own literal and spiritual grave. And so this is why James 
concludes this section with a very strong word in verse 16 where he says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived into thinking that God is the one who is tempting you to sin. But also, do not be deceived by falling into these various temptations as you will not enjoy the work of sin wreaking havoc upon your life and ultimately producing spiritual death. So that's the first element here in this passage of not being deceived, which is to not blame God for temptations. But in verses 17 and 18, we see the second element of not being deceived, which I'm calling be motivated by God's character and works. So in the same way that in verses 13 through 16, James had to negatively state who God is not and what God is not doing, now James is going to paint a picture for these Christians of who God is and how that actually helps them in their trials. Now, how do we as humans typically find motivation in life? Typically, we may think of like a motivational pump-up speech from a coach or something like that. And these kinds of speeches are, are usually filled with all sorts of imperatives for what we should do and why we should do this and why we got to work hard and all that sort of thing. But maybe it's not, maybe it's not a pump-up speech for you. Maybe you find motivation through setting goals and New Year's resolutions or things like that and striving to keep them. But you want to know the greatest motivation of all for humans? In the workplace, how do you motivate your employees to perform well? Is it by giving them a pump-up speech? Is it by loading them up with more things to do and more goals? The greatest way to motivate your employees or your children or anyone is simply by who you are. And that is the exact method that James is going to be going for here. Instead of loading these believers up with simply a pump-up speech or a to-do list, James is going to give them and us some good, old-fashioned theology. He's going to talk a lot about who God is, which is going to motivate these Christians to obedience in the midst of their trials. So what do we learn about God in these verses that motivates us by his character? Look again with me at verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So first, we see in there at the beginning of verse 17, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. These believers in the dispersion may be going through all sorts of trials, but certainly there are still things that they enjoy in life. James is essentially asking them, do you like your spouse and kids? Do you enjoy eating a nice meal? Do you like going for a walk? Do you enjoy your work or your hobbies or getting to gather with your church? All of those things come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. In fact, not just these things that I've mentioned, but indeed, every good thing in this world comes from God. He made it up. He came up with the concept of all the foods that make up a perfect Thanksgiving meal. He came up with the concept of cities and mountains and oceans and the sky and Coca-Cola and steak and coffee, and fall weather, and even the people who would eventually later in life come up with the Red Sox, and the Celtics, and the Patriots. <laughs> sure, the Bruins do. And by this, James is implying that not only do these things that we naturally enjoy come from God, 
But actually, every good and perfect gift comes from God, even the hard things in our lives. And for these Christians in dispersion, their hardships are actually an extension of God's blessing, of God's gift to them. But not only that, says James. The second truth about God in these verses 17 and 18 is that our God never changes. You see it there at the end of verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now why would that be an encouragement for these believers in the midst of their troubles? If I'm going through hard things, and if God's in control and he never changes, wouldn't that sort of logically imply that I'm always going to just continue to be going through hard things? Well, this is a tremendous encouragement for them because it means that God is not a flippant deity who sort of acts one way one day and then randomly changes his mind. He doesn't inconsistently dole out random lightning bolts of pain and hardship one day and then the next day we're having to live in fear of what's going to come next. It's an encouragement because we're not having to play the game of he loves me, he loves me not with God. God himself is steadfastly unchanging in his character. And if that is who he is, and he's given us every good and perfect gift, and he's not ever going to stop being who he is, that means that he will never stop loving us. And these truths can function as a bulwark of hope in the life of a suffering and struggling believer. Which leads us to the third truth about God in this section, which we see in verse 18. And that is that he brought us forth. In other words, he saved us. He redeemed us with the blood of his own son. He not only gave us every good and perfect gift that we enjoy, he's not only unchanging in his character, but he also gave us the quintessential greatest gift of all of salvation, which is Jesus Christ himself. And he saved us by bringing us forth by the word of truth. And this connects right into the fourth truth about God in these verses. And that is that the reason why he gives us all of these wonderful gifts, including salvation, is so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. In other words, these first believers in Christ were the first fruits of the harvest, a prelude and an appetizer of what was to come. And we are a part of that great tradition of what God is doing and saving people. God is still saving people today. God is still adding to this great harvest of his kingdom, including right here at First Baptist Medfield. And the logic flows in these verses that because of how good God is, naturally his people are going to produce a good result that was going to reflect his character and that's going to impact his world with this gospel of our salvation. So all of these truths about God should provide ample motivation for these believers who are struggling and for us who are struggling to remain steadfast in the midst of our trials. And now, these wonderful truths about God are in place for their motivation and not being deceived. James is going to turn to a very strong exhortation in verses 19 through 27. And that is the third way of not being deceived in our trials, which is to be a doer of the word. In verse 19, he encourages them to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to listen because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
These Christians' trials are functioning like a pressure cooker in their lives. And what was boiling out of their hearts toward one another in the church was anger expressed in quick and many words with not much listening, with feisty anger. And James gives them the wonderfully nuanced counseling admonition of stop it, cut it out. And in verse 21, he tells them how to do this. It involves putting away their filthy wickedness, but also receiving instead, receiving with meekness the word. So it's not simply a command here to just stop being sinful. But rather, it's an encouragement to put away their evil deeds and begin living in such a way that's in accordance with the gospel, which is precisely where he takes the argument in verses 22 through 25. James picks up again this theme of deception by saying that if they are only hearers of the word but not doers of it, they are completely deceiving themselves. And then he's going to go on to paint a picture for them of both the hearer of the word versus the doer of the word. The hearer of the word, James says, is like someone who goes, looks at himself in the mirror, and as soon as he goes away, he immediately forgets what he looks like. In other words, these people were around God's word. They were around God's people, going to church, a part of the community, but not actually living it out. They were hearing what to do. They were hearing about this good news of the gospel, but not actually receiving in themselves the word with meekness and living it, which ultimately proves that they were deceived. It's possible that they actually thought that they were saved, but in fact their deeds were outing them, that their hearts were not truly transformed at all. So James here is actually going to do the most loving thing that he could possibly do for these people by telling them hard words that were probably not fun to hear. He cares about the eternal state of their souls so much that James is unable to watch them continue in their deception and in their unbelief. And he is warning them that if they continue in these ways, that if they are not truly doers of the word, that that is terribly bad news for them. And hopefully, in doing so, James is waking these people up and putting a fire under them, so to speak, to warn them out of their complacent coasting or to shock them out of the sinful habits as a result of the trials they're in. But on the flip side, James says that the person who is truly saved is a doer of the word. They look into God's perfect law and persevere in their righteous acts. And they are blessed because of it. So maybe these Christians in dispersion are sitting there and they're reading the letter and they're like, okay, James, we got it. We got it so far. We understand that deception is dangerous. We know all these motivating truths about God. We know the importance of obedience and we want to obey, but how? How do we actually do that? What does obedience to God look like for us when we are scattered across the Mediterranean world and when we are facing trials and persecution on every side? And James would probably respond to them, by saying something like this. Good. I'm so glad you asked. Because I'm going to be spending the rest of my letter unpacking this for you. But for right now, I'm just going to give you a preview. I'm going to give you a concise table of contents style format, as it were. So here's what the definition of obedience looks like for you churches in the midst of your trials. This is where he takes it in verses 26 and 27. Look again at those verses with me. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So did you catch there the three components that James outlines for them? First, verse 26, they are to bridle their tongues. Second, the beginning of verse 27, they are to love the members of their churches impartially. And third, at the second part of verse 27, they are to keep themselves unstained from the world. These verses here, 26 and 27, are actually going to prove to form a superstructure for the whole rest of the book of James. So chapter 2 is going to unpack for these believers what it looks like for them to love their church impartially. Chapter 3 is going to lay out how they are to bridle their tongues. And chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is going to get more specific in regard to how they can reject worldliness completely. But did you see there? Did you see the deception language pop up again in verse 26? James says to be a doer of the word in these ways is to avoid deceiving ourselves. So that's the message of James for these churches in their dispersion. Here's how you avoid deception. Be not a blamer of God for your temptations. Be motivated by God's character and works. And be a doer of the word. What about for us? What is the take-home for us, how does this word land on our front doorsteps today in 2022 at First Baptist Medfield on this particular Sunday? Although we're separated by about 2,000 years, I would wager that you and I actually have a lot more in common with these churches in dispersion than we'd care to admit. We may not literally be in dispersion, but do we not all face trials of various kinds? Trials of various kinds is an all-encompassing phrase that could include any manner of hardship in our lives on a daily basis. Whether it's financial hardship, whether it is a conflict with a family member or a church member, whether it's a scary health concern or diagnosis, whether it's a spiritual concern or maybe some kind of mild form of religious persecution, when we face these trials... Aren't we too tempted to get a little wobbly in our faith? Maybe when things are going well, it's easy to be thought of as the nice, chill, easygoing doer of the word. What happens to our hearts when the trial meter gets cranked up to full throttle? In the same way as these Christians, we become tempted and lured by our sinful desires And our desires, if we scratch those itches, if we follow our hearts, if we follow those lusts, it will give birth to sin and death. If you're not a Christian today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm here today to give you the hard word to not follow those desires. They will only lead you to terribly devastating and heartbreaking places and ultimately to your own grave and finally and eternally to God's wrath against sin in a place of eternal conscious torment called hell forever and ever where God will justly and righteously pour out his wrath against our sin. But if you are a Christian, I would still warn you similarly. Do not be deceived into following the cunning and wily deceptions of our own desires and our own hearts that would lead us away from Christ and into sin. 
As we've seen, the way that we avoid deception is by looking to these wonderful truths about God. But aren't we too tempted to blame our trials on God? He is, after all, responsible, is he not? While it's true theologically that God is sovereign and it's not true that God sends temptation our way, what about all those bad, hard things in our lives? Well, James 1.17, as we've seen, helps us answer those difficult questions and functions as an excellent help in our temptations and in our struggles, which is this. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, which even includes the trials we are facing. So acknowledging our trials as a gift from the hands of our loving Father is one of the keys to remaining steadfast in those trials. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In the same way that Acknowledging God's trials, acknowledging our trials as God's gifts are helpful. Acknowledging the good things in our lives are equally helpful. So, what a blessing it is that we get to experience a healthy church family or a biological family that maybe we enjoy being around, our spouse or kids that we truly love and enjoy, or the blessing of getting to see sun rays stream in the window as you sip a cup of coffee. But friends, even better than all these gifts is God's good and perfect gift that came down from heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus came and lived the perfect life of obedience to his Father, and Jesus was a doer of the word at all times and in every way. But not only that, even though Jesus lived the perfect life, he died the death that you and I justly deserve for our sins and he endured God's wrath poured out in fullness upon him on that cross. The worst part about the cross was not the nails, was not the pain. The hardest part about the cross for Jesus was enduring that wrath against sin. And he did this for us, his people, because of his great love for us, so that we would not be separated from God, so that we would not remain cast out. So to my friends who don't know Jesus today, if you're outside of Christ, you don't have to be stuck in your sins. Sin doesn't have to be your master anymore. You don't have to resign yourself to a godless life of continuing to be led along by those sinful desires and ultimately a hell-bound eternity. If you can hear my voice today, Jesus is freely offering you today an opportunity to turn from your sins and trust him in faith and follow him. So would you turn? Would you place your faith in Christ Would you receive this good and perfect gift that the Father is offering to you freely today? Would you prove to not just be a hearer of the word today, deceiving yourself, but would you receive with meekness his word and his son and prove to be a doer of the word? But for Christians in the room, what is James' take-home obedience for us in this passage? 
I think some of these things would be great to discuss with a friend over lunch or coffee sometime this week. But as we saw in verses 13 through 16, maybe we're tempted to blame our temptations on God. Or later on in the passage, maybe we are overlooking God's good and perfect gifts. Maybe we're not counting our trials as joy, knowing that they're from our Father's hands. Maybe we are not clearly seeing and believing who God actually is in his true character. And we might be worshiping a deity of our own making. Maybe we're tempted to get short and snappy with our spouse or our kids or fellow church members. Maybe our mouths have been running a lot more than our ears have been listening. Maybe we've been very harsh and critical towards the Bible or towards our pastor's sermons. Would you be described today as someone who is truly receiving the word with meekness? Or maybe we've just heard so many sermons and so many Bible teachings our whole lives, it's easy for us to just sort of devolve into hearer mode. And as Paul Tripp says, adding to our big theological brains while we have heart disease. Or maybe we're not even looking at the word at all. And so forgetting who we are and who God is and what our lives are supposed to be about in the first place. Maybe our tongue is uncontrolled and strutting around, puffing ourselves up and bringing others down. Or maybe we're tempted to show partiality towards those who are most like us. You see, we don't seek to be doers of the word to earn God's love. Rather, because Jesus has already done everything for us, now we actually want to obey and follow him. The gospel isn't just for non-Christians to sort of get saved, get you in with Jesus, and then now we just move on to other things in the Christian life. No. Just as much as the gospel saves us, the gospel sustains us. So when you're being tempted today, when you're being tempted this week, look to Jesus' perfect life who resisted temptation at every turn and always provides a way of escape. When you're doubting God's character or overlooking his gifts, look to Jesus' perfect death on the cross. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? When you're tempted to forget the great glory of this salvation, remember that Jesus resurrected from the dead in the same way that he saved us and brought us forth by his word of truth, he too will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious resurrected body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. When you're slow to hear, when you're quick to speak, when you're quick to anger, remember that Jesus knew all of these things about you already and still signed up to redeem you anyway. And he never regrets dying for his beloved. Think back to those first days when Jesus first saved you. Do you remember how sweet and tender his loving care and grace was to you when you first believed? Well, friends, the good news of the gospel is that this is the same love and grace that he has for you in his gospel today. So no matter what your trials and temptations are, the wonderful reality of the gospel can help us immensely as we face these trials of various kinds, knowing that Jesus faced the ultimate trial of the cross in the grave and rose victoriously from the dead, rendering sin and Satan and death defeated forever and ever. Amen. So dear listener, are you trying to sit back today and enjoy life all while being deceived? This is the most important question you could ask yourself today. 
Am I being spiritually deceived? And if so, how? And if I am, how can I heed James's word here on how to not be deceived? No matter what your story is, no matter who you are, the Lord wants you to look to him today. Look to his goodness. Look to his character. Look to his grace. Look to his word. And so find motivation to persevere. He wants you to be a doer and not just a hearer. He wants you to look to Christ in the midst of your trials. And he wants you to not be deceived. Let's pray together.